The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk, and I am your host, wait for it, Mitch LaFawn. That is right. I am not uh, Ace Fraley or Rob Halford or whoever else I might have said I was in the previous episodes. But anyway, uh, great one for you today. The voice of Cinderella, and in fact, some might even say the voice of the 80s, Tom Kiefer joins me. He talks about the band, his new The Way Life Goes deluxe edition, owning the Cinderella name and a whole bunch of other fabulous stuff. Then I come back with Damon Johnson, who is in one of my favorite bands, the Black Star Riders. They are going out on tour with Judas Priest in Saxon, and their new album, Heavy Fire, came out earlier this year. Uh, it is so good. Uh, I had forgotten that it came out this year. I've been listening to it so much that I actually thought it came out like two years ago, and so it's right up there with L.A. Guns, the Missing Piece for Album of the Year. And then we finish, and you know what I've started doing on the, on the last few episodes, and what I want to do in, on a few following episodes is feature bands that are newer bands. And so I've got Nathan James of Inglorious. They have a new album that came out earlier this year called Inglorious Two. They have been compared to pretty much everybody uh, from the the seventies, from uh, you know classic early. Well, mid seventies, early eighties, White Snake to uh, Led Zeppelin to just uh, everybody, just a great melodic rock band. Uh, well, in fact, I don't even know if I want to call it melodic rock, but a, just a classic rock band done by uh, Nathan and, and his bandmates. Absolutely fabulous stuff. The first two albums, uh, Inglorious and Glorious Two, have come out on Frontiers Records. You know, they've been doing a whole bunch of sold-out shows in Europe, North America, a little bit late to, to get on the boat, but uh, you gotta get you got to go check them out. You know, hit up your Spotify or your Apple Music or, or Amazon, whatever you do, and look up The Inglorious, and of course, look up Tom Kiefer's The Way Life Goes, and of course, Black Star Riders Heavy Fire, which, which before recording today, I was actually listening to uh, just for fun, uh, not for work, not for for any kind of issues, just, uh, you know, listen because it's time to uh, listen. Uh, before I get into Tom Kiefer, I just want to quickly bring up something. The band A Perfect Circle is out on tour, and they have instituted a strict, strict no cell phone policy, no pictures at their show policy. Uh, so much so that at a recent gig, they threw out uh, a little over 60 people. I prefer to say a little under 100 people got thrown out after having paid their hard-earned money for a ticket. And it sort of begs the issue. So if you head over to the Facebook page, you know, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon, or um, on Twitter at Mitch LaFon, just I want to get your thoughts on this. Is, is this something that is well done, or is this something that's really stupid? And... I have to say, personally, I sit somewhere on the fence, you know. I've spoken to artists, and they get distracted. They, they, some of them feed off of the energy of the fan, and you look at that fan in the eye, and you see that fan singing along with you, and you see all this, and you get pumped up, and you give a better show. 
and now all you see is self, the back of cell phones staring at your face. And that can be distracting and somewhat even, I don't want to say demoralizing, but just, uh, you know, it's, it's not as, as, as poignant as staring somebody in the eye and going, yeah, let's do this together. Um, on the other hand, though, uh, from the fan's perspective, I understand, you know, your favorite guy comes to town, you're not on tour like the band is. They come to town once every year, once every two years, and sometimes even longer. You look at a case like UFO, who just play, played Montreal recently. They hadn't played Montreal since 1977 or so, so sometimes it's once every 40 years that a band will, will come around. So I can understand that a fan wants a picture of Klaus Mein or Joe Elliott or... Uh, you know, Andy Beersack of Black Veil Brides or Steven Tyler or whatever, and, and they want that memory. And, of course, they, they go to Twitter and to Facebook and to Instagram and to thisagram and thatgram and all this, and they share it and, it, and it sort of helps propagate and promote the band, though it's not a sort of a, we'll call it an, an atypical promotion if you want. And so so you've got these two camps of, you know, the artist might not necessarily want somebody with a... Can so, so can we sort of find a happy medium somewhere? Can we just say, all right, fans, bring your cameras, and, you know, the first three or four songs of the night, get your memory, get your memento, get your smiling Steven Tyler picture, and then put them in your pocket, and, l and let's just rock out. You know, why, why not? Um, and I can also say, from, from a fan's perspective, being uh, in the audience, to have that person in front of you, that has the camera out for the entire two hours. And not only do they have the camera out, God forbid that they dim their screen, you know. If they had the screen dimmed at 10, 10%, you know, you say, okay, I can live with it. But most people who have their camera out for the entire two hours have the screen at the full 100% brightness, and it's just a major pain in the tuchus. So, you know, if we all sort of said to each other, listen, let's do it for three, four songs, like the professional photographers. Professional photographers get three, four songs in the pit. They don't get the entire two hours. And you've all seen, you know, whatever the newspaper is, what is, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Montreal Gazette or whatever the newspaper or, or the, you know, Metal Edge or Circus Man. And you've seen great pictures of your favorite artists over the years. And they're all done within the first three songs. So, it's 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 doable. You can get the memory. You can get the picture of John Bon Jovi with his dimples or whatever, and let's move on and let's enjoy the show. And from the band's perspective, well, you know, listen, suck it up, Buttercup. You know, a fan pays his hard-earned money. They put you on a stage. They're 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 paying you. You know, especially if you're playing at at an arena, probably a hundred grand, two hundred grand to be there. You know, suck it up. Just you know, but. I'm with you on the sense that you don't want the entire two hours to have cameras in your face. So, say to your fans, listen, we will let you have cameras, but after this song in the set list, or after the third song, or whatever it is, put them away. Respectfully. Put them away. And the fans should also say, okay, they've asked us politely, let's... But to kick fans out, like a perfect circle did? I mean, that's, that's ludicrous. That's incredibly ludicrous. If I was a fan uh, of the band, uh, well, first of all, I wouldn't have been kicked out. I would have just kept my phone in the pocket because I'm just, I'm just not, I'm not looking for for a fight when I'm at a, at a at a show. But it would have been annoyed because I do know somebody that actually went to the show where people got kicked out, and I spoke to him, and he had taken out his phone not to take a picture, but to text 
his babysitter to say, how are the kids? And he got harangued. The security was right on his back and said, mother, put that phone away. And it's like, really? You can't let somebody text their babysitter like you're that, you know, full of yourself. So a perfect circle. I love you. But, you know, suck it up, buttercup. You know, don't be so full of yourself that you can't give a good show because, you know, Susie in the front row took a picture of you. I mean, give me a break. And at the same time, Susie, listen, love you, dear, dear darling, but you do not need 8,000 pictures of a perfect circle singer on, you know, whatever night of October 2017. So take your 10 shots, your 20 shots, your, you know, 45 shots in the first three songs, and then enjoy the show. I mean, you paid for a show. Enjoy the show. Please. Anyway, just wanted to get that off my chest. And uh, getting stuff off my chest, let's get right over to Tom Kiefer, an absolute favorite of mine. Loves Cinderella. Unfortunate that they only have four studio albums. You know, here we are 30-some years later, and I would love to be sitting here flipping through my discography of 12 CDs or 15 CDs, talking about which one was great and which one was not so great and which one had the best song and which one is misunderstood and which one was misguided. But we don't have that privilege. We have four albums, four quality albums, those first two especially. Uh, Wow, I mean, Night Songs. Talk about a debut album. Andy Johns, uh, Push Push, uh, you know, come on. Uh, great stuff. Uh, but anyway, here is, without further ado, and we've adoed <laughs> for nine minutes now, without further ado, here is singer, songwriter, all around great guy, formerly, no, currently, uh, who knows, of Cinderella, Tom Kiefer. We are speaking with singer Tom Kiefer. The uh, new deluxe edition of The Way Life Goes is out now. Tom, always a a great pleasure to talk to you. You too. Good good to talk to you. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been about two or three years since the album originally uh, came out. So, so talk to me about this re-release because not only did it uh, did you add a few songs to it, but you had Richard Dodd um, remaster it and and rework it. So, so talk to me about the extra songs and sort of the the, the remastering process. Yeah, and and also there's a uh, bonus DVD uh, included True. that has the um, the documentary. So yeah, so the um, the original release came out in uh, 2013, I believe, and um, you know got off to a to a great start, and the uh, record company worked uh, solid ground, and the Flower Song singles, and then somewhere along the line there was a um, a bit of a, a I, I refer to it as a corporate shakeup, shall we say. And uh, we we were faced with uh, losing the masters and the record being pulled from the shelves. And it's I, I still don't know all the details of what happened there. But before all that happened, we had discussed the idea of doing a deluxe or an expanded edition. So uh, basically, we had to kind of lawyer up and uh, spend a bit of time getting the masters back. And when we did, we decided to, um, for bonus tracks, we wanted to Rather than, you know, a lot of deluxe releases, what happens is they put songs that were left over from the original sessions. So we decided to record, do some new recordings of things that were inspired by the release of the original 
uh, you know, the original release and touring. So the first two songs that came to mind were with a little help from my friends, which is the first creative endeavor that my touring band and I took on together the first night in rehearsal. And we've kind of turned that into an amped up hard rock version of the Joe Cocker arrangement. And we've been playing that on tour ever, ever since in the encore. And we've had countless requests for studio versions of that song. And as well as the Nobody's Fool duet with Lizzie Hale, which came about along the, the Way Life Goes tour trail, where we did some shows together. And she and I have sang it many nights together on stage and uh, has become very popular. There's tons of YouTubes of that. And again, we've had countless requests for studio versions of that. So rather than going back to uh, leftovers from the original release we went in last year after we got the masters back after a little bit of legal work and went into the studio with uh, vance powell who's an amazing producer with my touring band it was the first time we recorded the touring band and the uh, chemistry live translated very well into the studio and laid down those two tracks help from my friends and nobody's fool and documented the whole thing on video uh, our our photographer who travels with us tammy vega did a really cool piece very fly on the wall um where you really feel like you're in the studio working you know watching the band and and the producer and lizzie and us all work together so that's a very cool feature that's on it too so uh we laid down the tracks fairly live in about three days and then uh, much in uh, the tradition of the way i work mixing took forever <laughs> we went through quite a few mix engineers and finally ended up with the mixes that that we uh that we have on the record but you know spent the better part of last year mixing and editing the documentary and getting all the artwork together uh david calcano did a amazing job on the artwork and illustrations there's a 20-page booklet that has uh illustrations depicting each song and the and he did the cover and the whole package so um it's uh we put a lot of time into making it a, a special um expanded edition and we're happy to have it back on the shelves after it being really not available for about two years. Yeah, and it was too bad that it wasn't available. Now, um, now that you've re sort of reestablished your rights to this album, where does that leave us for a new album? Because you know, you look historically, Cinderella only has four studio albums. You've got this. Um, where are we in terms of new Tom Kiefer music? Well, since the since this record was released, and this record took a very long time to make. You know, it, w it was very unconventional the way the record was made. Uh, actually, everything about this record right. and touring has been a bit unconventional. But it took nine nine ten years to create this one, and you know that's when I'm in the studio, I, I don't really write. So once the record was released and we put this band together and we've been touring, it's kind of like back out into the real world. And, and then, and that starts the the process that, you know, of like filling the well, you know, you're back out on the road, you're traveling, playing music, you're meeting people, you're experiencing your living life. So, you know, over the last four years that we've been out touring and building this new band on the road, um, there's been lots of song ideas building up, you know, those little seeds that come to you as you're, riding on the bus or what, you know, anywhere they can come. So we want to get into the studio. We're kind of targeting the fall of 2018 to go in and start recording a follow-up record to the way life goes. And we're going to record it with uh, the band that I've been touring with because they, they really, uh, that worked out very well in the studio when we recorded these bonus tracks, the chemistry that we've had live on the road 
translated very well into the studio. And that's not always the case. So that was uh, very refreshing to uh, walk into the studio and just bang these tracks out in about two days. And everyone created, uh, contributed creatively and worked very well together. So it, it's a great chemistry that we have. Yeah. And- so that that's the goal. We're, we're going to probably tour into our, our tour dates will take us into probably next summer behind the deluxe release. Cause now that we've got it back on the shelf and we've got new material on it, uh, we're going to continue touring a little bit more behind that and then get into the studio next fall. That's what I'm looking forward to. And, and of course th- this album was even longer in the making because some of these tracks are those portrait record demos, right? If you look at uh, thick and thin cold day in hell, solid ground. I mean, those, those songs date back to, I guess, 99 or so, right? Somewhere around there. Well, the, the, well, the songs do, but none of the recordings on the record of course, are actually of course. those recording. Every, everything was re-recorded. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so in terms of the writing, it, it goes back, you know, a few years even prior to that. But some of this stuff was written, uh, a couple of these songs were also written along the way as we were recording. So um, it's kind of a mixture of tracks. But, yes, yeah, some of them do date back to that. Yeah, that that unfortunate uh, situation. Um, just talk to me quickly about Cinderella in the sense that you only managed as a band to make four studio albums, and yet here we are in 2017. People still love you. They still love Eric. They still love the band. Um, are you satisfied with the discography, or do you wish as a band that you had been able to make sort of ten albums? Well, I've always been a believer in quality over quantity, Um, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to create music or to make a record. I think if you can record a song in 10 minutes for $100 and it's amazing, great. But if it takes two months and $100,000 and it's great, either way, you know, there's no right or wrong. So we put a lot of time into the Cinderella records. Um, We had the benefit of a major label behind us who did really not interfere with the creative process. So we were able to, we had free reign to do what we wanted to pick the producers that we wanted. And I'm very proud of those records. So, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda. Yeah. I mean, it would have been great if we could have made some more records, but um, it didn't happen that way. So I, I try not to have any regrets when I look in the rearview mirror. As a matter of fact, I really try not to ever look in the rearview mirror. I, I keep my eyes forward, and I'm I'm proud of the records that we made, and I'm proud of the the way life goes. And that took a long time and was very unconventional, but um, it just kind of the creative process. It is what it is, and sometimes life gets in the way of that too, because there was the whole issue with my vocal paralysis that, um, you know, certainly caused some setbacks for, for me. And, um, you know, that was out of my hands. So, uh, life throws things at you that you're not expecting. Uh, we certainly weren't expecting to be dropped by Mercury records after earning them hundreds of millions of dollars either. That was, that was a little bit of a shocker. So, uh, I think John Lennon said it best that, uh, life's what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Absolutely. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it is what it is. So, And it's just amazing that the first album came out 31 years ago, and it, it speaks to the quality of the music that uh, nobody has forgotten. I mean, it, it's just, it just it's a testament to the quality on those four albums. Um, 
I do want to look back on on two two other things, and then we'll 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 move forward. But uh, long cold winter sessions. You brought in Cozy Powell. Cozy is one of the most incredible drummers in the world, or certainly was until he passed away. Um, what was it like working with uh, with Cozy on those demos, and and what did he bring to you? Because you were sort of rookies at the time, and he was this seasoned veteran. Um, what was it like having him in those sessions? You know, you're you're right. We were rookies, particularly in the first record, and we learned we learned much from Andy Johns. And I think going into Long Cold Winter, knew our way around the studio much better. And um, I was certainly much more vocal with Andy in terms of what we were, what I'd like that record to sound like. And we we were trying to move it more into an organic sound and get away from that processed 80s sound that the first record had. So, um, but, but we were still, still rookies. <laughs> so, so having Cozy come in, walk into the studio, this legendary drummer was just amazing. Um, even though we had a successful record under our belts, you know, he had much more of a discography and, um, and, uh, was just, you know, it just felt like a legend walked in and, you know, I'll say his drumming, he has, um, something that, you know, I think when you go back to those drummers that are, were schooled through the sixties and the seventies, you know, they were very schooled in what, you know, that we would refer to the swing factor. You know, if you listen to John Bonham and, you know, they listen to the big band stuff and they know about more the subtleties of grace notes and stuff. And cozy really had a swing. And I think the drumming on that record was, had a, had a different style than a lot of the, the records I think that came out in the eighties, you know, it was, had a lot of feel and, uh, just had a really great, um, you know, Andy always used to call it a swing, you know, <laughs> he would, he would get a big smile on his face when the track was really grooving and had that, that circular, uh, swinging motion that he would refer to. And cozy was great at that and particular on his drum fills, you know, his drum fills were just so musical and there were so many grace notes in them and they weren't, you know, they weren't like, duh, duh, duh. they were like, duh, 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 you know, and really just, and you could hear that old school influence that they had from, you know, going back to, you know, uh, the, the kind of things that influenced Bonham and all those great drummers from the seventies. So very cool. Uh, just amazing yeah, to work I mean, with them. Cozy was absolutely spectacular. And then uh, just before I move forward, just, uh, you, you mentioned Andy Johns. Here's a guy who's done free humble pie, uh, worked with Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, and you get him in on night songs. What was it like to have, first of all, that kind of producer? The record company says, we're going to get you Andy Johns, not just, you know, Mitch LaFon from, from Montreal. And, and what did, <laughs> right? Although and, I'm sure you could produce a good record with all the experience that you've had over the years. I, you know what? Probably. I, I would love to try mm -hmm. it. But no, but seriously, though, what was it like to have him and, and that confidence shown by the record company? Because they didn't just throw some stock guy at you. They, th they threw a guy with pedigree who, who's been with the best. How did that rub off on you? What do you learn from him? And yes, maybe you, he might not have given you the exact sound you wanted, or what, but there's still something to be said about working with Andy Johns. Oh, oh no, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm I'm in no way complaining about the sound of night songs, and you know, and obviously we worked together in Long Cold Winter too, and 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 we were moving more towards the or, or more of an, an organic sound, you know. But when Andy came in, he he was doing his job as a producer, and that was to give us the sound of the times. That's how you produce a hit record, you know. So that process slick sound 
even though we were thinking we love the work he did with the stones. We love the work he did with Zeppelin and his mentality was I've moved on from that. And, and that's, he was correct. You know, he, he produced a hit record and that was his job. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we moved, um, towards, a a, a little rawer and more organic sound as we, as we work together more. But, um, that aside, um, the, his, his, his knowledge of music and his, his ears and, and what he taught us about time and groove and, um, just, you know, we didn't think about those things, you know, we, we just were used to jumping up on stage and just playing and we sounded great live. And we thought that when we went into the studio, we were just, it would be like jumping up on stage and just playing, but the studio is so much more of a microscope. And, uh, we learned much from Andy about that. And he was, his approach was, you know, he didn't ever hold back any punches. You know, he would tell you just flat out, you know, that that sucks or, you know, you've got to be kidding me go in there and do that again. And uh, he was very hard on us, but looking back on it, he needed to be. And I, I learned so much from him and, and he and I were good friends right up to the, the day he died. And I, I'm, I miss him greatly i mean every day i i, I even included a, my favorite quote from him on the deluxe package it's in the in the liner notes yeah. but um he's uh he was extremely musical and i learned everything from him about how to make a record yeah i mean you, the records you've made with him and and of course cozy great stuff um the brand name cinderella you have tr- chosen to go out as tom Kiefer. Less, you know, other bands have gone out with one member calling it the brand name. Um, why have you chosen to not use the Cinderella name? And why has the band itself not, you know, you and Eric and, and Fred gone out with or without Jeff and just been, why has it been sort of for the four guys or nothing? Um, you know, I, I don't want to speak on the internal workings okay. um, of the band and what's Fair going enough. on. Uh, I'll just, I'll, I will leave it at what I've said before is there's been issues within the band that have date back decades and they have, you know, the wheels have come off and, and that's, that's, you know, that's all I'm going to say about that because I, I'm not going to, okay. Any, okay. Anything else that goes on between us, but it's been covered by not only me in the press, but other members have done interviews as I'm sure, you know, so, um, but speaking on the, the name issue, um, I just don't think it's credible, you know, many times, at least for me in in my heart and and the way I feel, um, I own the name, but I would never call my new band Cinderella. It's not Cinderella. I'm building something new and it hasn't been easy. It's like starting over, but I'm riding on a bus with a group of people who are extremely talented and extremely committed to what we're doing. And, um, you know, we've built this, you know, a lot of people say, why are you guys still touring? And it's like, because when the record first came out in 2013, because I chose not to use the name Cinderella, I was starting over. And we've been building this band on the road from very small clubs to now where we're headlining or direct support on major festivals and fairs. And it's been a punch and match, man. You know, it, it's, it's starting over. And I'm proud of what we've done, and it's been really fun to build this with this band. And it it's actually more gratifying to have built it as something new. And I I would I would never just you know 
get a bunch of new people and call it Cinderella. I just, that's just not, you know, it's, it's, it's just not cool me. or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, uh, my apologies, I wasn't trying to get at dirt. I was trying to couch it into the, uh, the an answer about around the name. Uh, so yeah, well, just... well, there's the answer about the name yeah. and, um, I don't think I've ever actually really talked about that. So you got an exclusive there. And, and in terms of, you know, I didn't think you were going for dirt. I just, I'm not going to speak on other people's right. So, behalf. So, so, um, so let me move on. Believe then. me, it's, 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 you know, it's been going on a long time. Uh, the dynamics that, that have caused the, uh, uh, what what has happened what, so yeah so l- let me just uh before we wrap up here because we're, we're running out of time um your health you mentioned the vocal paralysis uh recently in pennsylvania you had a, a scary incident um how are you in terms of overall health because i, I know that as i hit 50 here everything hurts all the time and i'm not on stage for two and a <laughs> half a, um, but but how are you? I mean, is the vocal stuff all said and done? Is is everything else in order, or you sort of have to mind how you schedule things these days? Well, the the voice has been really strong, I would say, for the last. You know, look, I've been on the road for eight years straight now. If you include the last three Cinderella tours that I did, and eight years back to back, and my voice has been really strong. Knock on wood, and I'm knocking on my head right now. Um, and you know, it, it was decades really of kind of trying to overcome this paralysis thing because there's no medical cure for it. You know, you just have to, doctors said, well, you just got to figure it out, go work with some vocal coaches. And I've worked with everyone on the planet and it took years to really get it to a point where, you know, I, I have a routine and a workout kind of system for it, if you will, and a warm up system that makes it, you know, most nights, you know, as good, if not better than it used to be. But, you know, a rock singer is always susceptible to injury. And um, I've been very fortunate the last eight years I've been on the road that I really haven't had any until uh, this year, this summer, I I injured my left vocal cord and we had to reschedule. We had to push back about two months of dates and I had surgery. But we've been back on the road now for about six weeks and I've been doing great. Other than the incident that you mentioned in Pittsburgh, so, um, that was, that had nothing to do with the voice. That was, um, exhaustion. Uh, the deluxe was being released and we had a very hard schedule that started in Dallas, Texas and took us up through New York back to back shows into two heavy press days in New York and then straight into a four in a row of shows. Uh, most of the shows were sold out, lots of bodies in the building, hot lights. And by the fourth show, I started feeling really weird when I was warming up and I collapsed about 15 minutes before the show got hauled off in an ambulance. Um, by the time I was in the ambulance, I was pretty much numb from my chest down and felt like there was a boa constrictor wrapped around my chest. So, um, I spent the night in the hospital. They ran uh, a lot of tests. Fortunately, my heart checked out fine. And uh, it turned out that it was severe dehydration and heat exhaustion. And uh, I think I've had heat exhaustion and dehydration before, uh, never this severe. Uh, typically, you know, your muscles will start to cramp up uh, when that happens. And, you know, when I've had it in the past, you know, I've, I've, I'm regularly checked into the hospital for IV fluids after runs of shows. Yeah, and, and that's not uncommon, but this was in the middle of a run. So a show had to be postponed or rescheduled. That was a first. 
and it was probably the most severe that I've had. I've I've never had that sensation all the way up to like to my neck of um, it was it was scary. And, and I didn't even live it. Just just hearing you describe it exhausted me. So so I can imagine what it was yeah. like. Uh, and I'll I'll finish on this because our, our well, time's up. Yep. Well, well, and then, and I'll say to the, to to this to this same point. Um, you know, it's a very high energy show, and, it, and I've always performed that way, and always have sweated a lot on stage and it's been something i've struggled with even in my 20s you know this show the way i perform in the register that i sing in is not for the faint of heart even when i was younger and i that's why i'd never drank when i toured but even back then it was you know you'd always see me with a gatorade and uh you know so it's it's you know we we've kind of made a rule now actually we made a rule last year that we weren't going to do more than four shows or we were not going to do four shows in a row anymore. Three's the max. And I kind of got my arm twisted this year a little bit to, to schedule these four in a rows, a couple of them here towards the end of the year. And, um, whenever we've done that, I've ended up in bad shape. Three's three's my max in a row. Yes. So we have, we're, we're going back to the policy that was instated last year Yeah, yeah. that we, uh, made the mistake of, uh, going back on this year. So, yeah, well, we, let's not do that again because uh, we need you around we, for 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 another you know thirty years. We need you around. Uh, but just uh, before we we finish here, uh, the album still climbing. Nineteen ninety four, um, blood from a stone, through the rain. Uh, of course, hot and bothered. Absolutely fabulous songs. Just looking back on that, are, are you proud of that album? Because it sort of fell through the cracks, mostly because it was nineteen ninety four and everything was falling through the cracks. But it's a solid album, right? I mean, I've always enjoyed it. Oh yeah, no, I, I love the songs on that. It, it was a difficult album to write for because it was right when I was first hit with the the paralysis, and I didn't know what voice I had to write for because there were huge chunks of my register gone. So it was a challenging a- album to make um, in terms of writing uh, melodies, and I eventually just had to say, "I'm just going to write what I hear, and I'll get into the studio and figure it out then." And the process of recording the vocals for that was very different from many other records. The, the first three records, I just went in and sang down a few passes. They did some comping and we were done. Uh, still climbing was, you know, literally in some cases singing a couple words at a time, uh, just trying to get what I heard in my head onto tape. And, you know, that started the long process of just the vocal battles that have been well-documented. So it was different in that sense. So, some of the memories from creating it are not the best ones I've ever had. But at the end of the day, you know, yeah. I love the songs and I think it's a really cool record. And I think you're absolutely right. It was more a sign of the times. Uh, labels at that point were not funding promotion for, you know, bands from the 80s. It was just like yeah, throw were. it at the wall. Boom. I don't, I don't think they even worked a single off of that. So. No, and and Blood from a Stone to me is one of the the greatest Cinderella songs ever. I just I just absolutely love it. And uh, Tom, I know our time is up, but again, thank you, and hopefully we shall see you in Canada or Montreal uh, soon. Would love to. We we actually haven't been to that part of Canada yet, and we're looking forward to it. Thank you, thank you, Tom. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Mitch Lafon. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure that you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, that isn't the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they're not available. With TrueCar, 
you get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by TrueCar, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a TrueCar certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. Next, TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car that you are looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to TrueCar users by the TrueCar Certified Dealer Network. There are over 13,000 TrueCar Certified Dealers nationwide. You will work directly with a TrueCar Certified Dealer contact. TrueCar users are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they are connected with a TrueCar Certified Dealer. TrueCar users save an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. There you have it, my uh, interview with Tom Kiefer. Always been a big Cinderella fan. I remember having seen them open for Bon Jovi back many, many, many years ago. And so uh, always a great uh, time chatting with uh, Tom. But let us move on to Damon Johnson of the Black Star Riders. Damon, of course... Spent time with Brother Kane, had a string of number one hits back in the 90s, then over to John Waite, then Alice Cooper before winding up in Thin Lizzy, and of course, and of course, I say of course quite a bit, I've just noticed. Um, Thin Lizzy had a great run. They opened up for Priest, they did a whole bunch of European festivals and European shows, and the band was sounding great, and Fans were saying, man, you guys should record. And they had this thing, well, okay, we're going to record, but we can't really release a Thin Lizzy album. There's no fill. How are we going to release a Thin Lizzy album with no fill? But then again, how are we going to let this great-sounding band just not exist on tape or on vinyl or CD, whatever you're going to call it? And so they changed their name to Black Star Writers. They have put out three albums, which to me, all three albums are absolutely masterpieces. The new one, Heavy Fire, is an absolute, absolute must-own for 2017. But uh, Damon and singer Ricky Warwick and even um, others, you know, they continue to make solo music. And, and, and Damon has a new album called Birmingham Tonight, a live album, which calls from the Black Star Riders uh, catalog, the Thin Lizzy catalog, the Brother Kane catalog, and it's just wonderfully recorded. It's just a lot of energy and vibe and rawness to it. So if you can track down Birmingham Tonight by Damon Johnson, do yourself that favor. And was it last year or the year before he had an EP out called Echo, which is also, it was only five songs, but also there's a song on there called Scars, which is delightful, absolutely delightful, uh, very much worth picking up. So without further ado, and because I, I do my, a lot of adoos before I adoo, uh, let's just get right into Damon. Black Star Riders, Judas Priest, Saxon, 
coming at you in March of 2018 in North America and all over the world. Firepower, heavy fire. Here is, from the Black Star Riders, one of my favorite guitarists, the one, the only, Damon Johnson. We are speaking with Black Star Riders guitarist Damon Johnson. Damon, always, always a pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure is all mine, sir. Great to talk to you, Mitch. Yes, and of course, what we have got now is this incredible tour announcement. Judas Priest is going out on their Firepower tour in the spring of 2018, and they are bringing along the Black Star Riders. Um, unless I'm mistaken, this is sort of your first foray into North America, excluding any kind of like cruises, right? This is this is the first time this band comes this way. Well, we actually did. There's two times that Black Star Riders has played in the, basically just in the United States. We weren't able to make it up to Canada, but. Back when we released our debut album in 2013, uh, I believe it was in 14 that we did a run of about three or four weeks, maybe maybe more like five weeks. And uh, we learned a lot on that experience, Mitch, because, you know, it just really brought to the forefront how tough it is without, you know, several outlets to promote your music, several... Um, you know, just more collected energy to raise awareness about a new band. Even though we have a classic rock heritage, Black Star Riders, as you know, was a brand new band at that time. So it was hard. It was hard to educate people. It was hard to even let the fans know what was going on without just your own Facebook page or social media. So it kind of freaked us out a little bit, to tell you the truth. So we have not really come back to to America since that experience, just hoping that some type of a package tour situation might come our way. And right about the time we were pretty much about to give up hope, <laughs> you know, Rob Halford and Glenn Tipton called and said, Hey, you guys want to do this? And we, we were elated. We're so grateful to those guys. We have a, a great history with Judas Priest and they've been very vocal supporters of ours over the course of all three albums. So yep. we really feel like they deserve a tremendous amount of credit for making this happen. They've, uh, they've really done us a solid to, to bring us along and, and give us this exposure. So we're very grateful. Yeah. And, and, and the last time you were in North America with Judas Priest, it was under the, the Thin Lizzy moniker. Was there any consideration to calling it again Thin Lizzy for, the, for this purpose? Or is, do you really want to establish Black Star Riders this time? We really want to establish Black Star Riders. It never crossed our mind to call it Thin Lizzy. I think there's probably some fans that might have liked that. Um, because there certainly are still pockets of guys and gals that are just as passionate Thin Lizzy fans as you and I are. Um, you know, that's interesting that you would ask that question because um, I'd never really thought about it. But as I do right now, yeah, I'm sure there are people that would, would want to see that. But what they don't know is the momentum that we have been able to build across the pond in Europe, particularly in the United Kingdom and countries like Germany and Austria and up in Scandinavia. So, you know, it's been a real, um, it's been a growing process, Mitch, but there's no question that we've accomplished a lot, especially for, for guys basically playing, you know, playing Les Pauls and Marshall Amps and, you know, classic sounding hard rock. Um, yep. You know, I was, 
I was one of the naysayers in the band, to tell you the truth, when we started this whole thing. I've been in so many startup projects since my experiences with Brother Kane back in the 90s that, you know, when the conversation first came up of, of forming a brand new band, I was like, wow, guys, I don't know. <laughs> this is, this is going to be hard. Now, not to say that it hasn't had its challenges, but, you know, I think it's a testament to Certainly the, the, the membership of the band, we've got solid management, solid relationship with Nuclear Blast. They've been a great label for us. And without a doubt, we've delivered three quality albums now over the course of just four and a half years. So uh, it's been a lot of hard work, man, but we're starting to see the, see the results of it. So it's, uh, it's gratifying. Yeah, it really is. And, and some of the challenges has been uh, the lineup. There's been a couple of changes. The lineup that we're going to see in North America on this Firepower tour is—is is this sort of the lineup moving forward, or are parts still sort of moving as need to be? This is absolutely the lineup moving forward, Mitch. Um, you know, we—we've loved every experience we've had with our previous band members. You know, you're—you're you're certainly talking about Marco Mendoza on the bass and my great friend, Jimmy DeGrasso on drums. Um, you know, you're talking about two of the most well-known world-class musicians at their instruments that I've ever played with. Their resumes are long and the phone rings, you know, the phone rings and they get calls about doing all types of stuff, road work, studio work. And I get it. You know, we all get it. Uh, it's not like it would be if we were, you know, guys that grew up in the same town and, you know, we'd been a band for 10 or 15 years and this was all that we knew. You know, I think that's always the challenge you're going to have when you have a band made up of veteran musicians with their own lengthy resumes and relationships and experiences. So, um, but the thing I'm proud of is that, you know, we've got great relationships with those guys and, and they continue to succeed and do well and, you know, whenever we cross paths, it's all hugs and high fives and love and how's your family and that, and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I think the two guys that we got are, are just as incredible. And, uh, you know, we couldn't be happier with Robbie. This Now Robbie's completed two albums with us and then with Chad Zaliga on drums, who we've known, ironically, since when Thin Lizzy toured with Priest, uh, Chad was the drummer with Black Label Society at that time. So that was when we first met Chad. So it's ironic that now we're coming back to the U.S. with Priest, with Chad as our drummer. Yeah, and by the way, I think a lot of bands go through growing pains. I mean, if you look at the early Judas Priest, they had, uh, you know, Chet Atkins. You look at early Iron Maiden. I mean, that's just part of growing into being a band is just finding those parts that work, whatever the reasons may be. So, you know, um, Heavy Fire. The last album, a great album. Yeah. Uh, in Thank fact, I, I had I had mentioned that L.A. Guns' Missing Piece was album of the year, and then somebody said, "Well, what about Heavy Fire?" And I said, "Well, no, that came out last year." And in fact, it hasn't. It's 2017. I've just listened to it so much that I I thought it, I've been listening to it for like two years now. But um, talk to me about that album and and sort of moving forward to the fourth album. Is is sort of this heavy classic rock? what we're going to keep doing or, you know, talk to me about heavy fire and then where we're going for the fourth one. Yeah, I think we definitely feel like we have a sound. There's no question that that sound initially was, was an extension of, 
you know, the Thin Lizzy history. We've got Scott Gorham in our band who is still passionate about making new records as much or more than any of the rest of us. He's so proud of what we've accomplished. And it's, you know, for him to have this outlet to um, not just bring in his own new song ideas, but just, you know, get in the studio, come up with some new songs, make records. We always have such a great time when we record anyway. So he's definitely a catalyst in kind of our overall sound. As you and I've discussed before, Black Star Writers is comprised of two guys within the band that are fairly prolific songwriters. Uh, Ricky and I are constantly writing, not just for Black Star Writers, maybe for our solo stuff, maybe we're co-writing for friends for, for one of their projects. It's just, it's become another skill that we not only can do well, we really, really enjoy it. So, you know, for me, as the calendar has clicked over to November. We're about to go to Europe literally tomorrow uh, to do a three-week run of dates. You know, Ricky and I are already starting to to bounce ideas back and forth for the next album. I don't think we're ever going to shy away or want to shy away from straight-ahead guitars, bass, and drums, and harmony guitar solos, and, and great story lyrics. And Ricky's such an incredible lyricist, and uh, you know his his influences and inspirations are you know, the guys that are considered the legend of all time, you know? So, um, we love it. We enjoy it. Are we selling millions of records? Hell no. We're never going to, but we're not doing it. That, that can't be the motivation. It's not the motivation. We get fulfillment out of making these records of songs that we love to get in our own cars at home and put it in and listen to ourselves and go, man, that is badass. We really knocked it out with it, with that song or that album you know, whatever. So, uh, I don't, I don't see us incorporating a bunch of loops and, uh, you know, electronic dance music influences. No, no disrespect to that music, but that that's, that's not who we are. And it's not a part of our sound. No, it really isn't. Um, the Alice Cooper gig. I want to, I want to talk to you about that because I see it both as being, you know, a launching pad where it got you into the Thin Lizzy thing and it got you to the Black Star Riders and, and, and that exposure really sort of kick-started the career. But on the other hand, it's post-Brother Kane. You're no longer the boss of your band. You're, you're, you're a hired gun. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but, but how important was that for you? Because you went from, you know, I lie in the bed I make, number one, on mainstream rock, and Fool Shine On, number one. And now you're just... You know what I'm saying? Like, how important was it to get that gig for you? And was it bittersweet? Great question, Mitch Lafon. I've never been asked that. Yeah, and and I... and I, and I, and I so Just before you... I wanted to ask you that, but I didn't want it to sound disrespectful, like, oh, your band broke up and Alice say Like, that's not what I mean at all, but, but there is that of sort course. of reality that you're, you're the boss in Brother Kane, you've got these number one mainstream rock singles... And Alice says, hey, come. And, and by the way, you guys were great. I mean, that band, that 2004 band was fantastic. I mean, fantastic. But, great band. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Well, Mitch, your question, like I've just had a wave of different memories and, and kind of realities brushed through my mind. I'll try and condense this. When Brother Kane broke up in 2000, yes, we had just had a run of number one rock radio hits. But rock radio had changed 
you know, the, the stuff that radio started playing heavily was just heavier music, you know, the corn and seven dust and limp biscuit and things like that. Uh, we have friends in those bands, so it's not, you know, no disrespect to those guys whatsoever, but musically, lyrically, none of that stuff spoke to me or the guys in brother King. You know, we weren't about to, to kind of steer our sound towards some modern trend just so we could stay on the radio. And we had always been kind of the redheaded stepchild of radio anyway, Mitch. Uh, nobody could ever put us in a box, which we thought was a great thing. But from a business standpoint, from our record company's efforts, it really made things hard. And then when you add to that, that our record label had a revolving door of hirings and firings. It's like every record, we literally felt like we were starting from scratch. And it was just exhausting. And by the time we made that third album, man, everybody was getting divorced and our personal lives were a wreck. And I just, I was the first guy to raise his hand and just say, uncle, I'm, I, <laughs> this is not fun. I don't care how good of a band we are. This is, this is not fun. And everyone agreed. And we, we just decided to, to move on and do other stuff. I was ready to go back to school, maybe do something else entirely. And I remarried in 2002, played around Alabama, kind of doing odds and ends. I had a co-write of Stevie Nicks cut one of my songs, which is a huge honor and a total surprise. But joining another band was just not on my radar. So I did do a sideman. My first sideman experience was with John Waite. Um, one of the greatest rock singers of all time, by the way. And, you know, and it was just enough. John didn't do a lot of work. You know, we do 35, 40 shows a year. I was still able to, to be at home more, starting my, my life with my new wife. I had kids from my first marriage. So I was just really involved in all of that. Kind of content, almost kind of saying, ah, the artist thing has passed me by. I'll, uh, I'll see what the future brings and just kind of keep, poking along as best I could. So the Alice Cooper phone call came out of nowhere, which came out of nowhere. Uh, I, a friend of mine had been playing guitar for Alice for a few years and had it not been for him, you know, Alice to this day wouldn't even know that I exist. So um, I'm certainly grateful to my friend, Eric Dover, but the short answer to your question is the Alice Cooper gig changed my life. And more importantly, man, it recharged my batteries not only as a performer, but as a songwriter. Uh, the incredible, <laughs> just to me, it still blows my mind that I joined the band in September of 2004. And in January of 05, four months later, we're literally in the studio in Los Angeles, writing and recording a brand new Alice Cooper album. So for me to get that experience of seeing one of the masters of the art form, turn into that guy sitting across the table from me with a pen and paper in his hand. And I got a guitar in my hand. He'll go, I'll try this chord. And I, you know, and I'd say, well, what about this chord? I like to go, I like that. I'm going to sing over that. Uh, that melody's better. You know, mind blowing experience, totally mind blowing experience that I would get a front row seat or something like that. So it just, it just re-energized me, man. It, it just, it was sort of like the universe saying, nobody, this is your calling. This is what you're meant to do. You've learned a lot over the last 10, 15 years. You need to keep doing this. This is where you belong. 
Yeah, and it, and it must have refocused you as well because to go on with Alice, who's a consummate professional, and to be at gigs that are at a higher level as opposed to you, you know, in a van driving around the backwoods of whatever, Alabama or Florida, trying, you know, that could have been very devastating. But to have Alice and, and, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, th- this is what I'm meant to do. Um, how is it, you know, when you join Thin Lizzy, you're in that role again of uh, hired gun. How has it been for Black Star writers now to actually have that freedom to sort of, I don't want to say impose your sound, but certainly have a say in the sound and in the musical direction? Um, you know, just, just talk to me about that, that ability now to say, okay, I'm Damon and me and Ricky and Scott, we can put our stamp on this and not just be, you're the guy who's, you know, going to be on stage and, you know. Just playing the, yeah, playing the parts. Well, this, this kind of ties into your previous question in an interesting way, or you might find it interesting, Mitch. My time in Alice, I was basically there for two lengths of time, 2004 through 06. Uh, I worked on a couple other projects and I came back to Alice, 09, 2010 and half of 11. And that summer I was really starting to get that itch to do my own thing again. I had no grandiose aspirations of, you know, maybe do some Brother Kane dates, but not like try and relaunch it. But I just wanted to maybe be a, an independent artist, make my own solo records, play some gigs closer to home, not have to be on the road as much because yet again, you know, touring with Alice, man, he doesn't mess around. He was still doing 100, 110 dates a year, man. That's a long time to be away from your wife and kids. It just is. I don't care how great the gig is. It's a lot. I was starting to kind of feel like, okay, I've done this. I love Alice, his family, the band. These are lifelong relationships. I just had lunch with Chuck Garrett today, by the way. <laughs> Chuck's um, great. Yeah, man. These are these are just some of the best friends of, of my life, man. And, I, and they're all family to us. But I knew that um, I knew it was time to start maybe thinking about moving on. Doing doing something else. So when the Thin Lizzy call came, originally it was only going to be for that six week Judas Priest tour, Mitch, because um, they weren't even sure what they were going to do if they were going to keep this new Thin Lizzy together. They, they they didn't know. They just said, "Hey, can you do these six weeks with us?" I said, "I would be honored. I'd love to." And then over the course of that tour, you know, the band sounded great. Ricky and I just hit it off and became immediate fast friends scott and brian downey were really knocked out with my guitar playing they they said some incredible things to me mitch as did the fans and they just felt like i was a really good fit for the sound of thin lizzy playing those classic songs so you know six months later the talks turned to hey maybe this is the band maybe this is the band to finally think about making a record so take the fact that I had already thought of stepping away from Alice to, to go back to being a songwriter and, and doing my own recordings. That was kind of a no brainer for me. I was like, wow, yeah, if we could do that, that'd be great. I can scratch that creative itch. What an incredible experience it would probably be to make a record with these guys who are also heroes of mine. So it was just, it was starting to feel like a win-win on a lot of levels. Well, all right. Let me let me move on here to to uh, the producer Nick Raskolnikov. 
I can't really pronounce oh, I it. Thought, I thought you were good. <laughs> Raskalunik. Raskalunik. Something like that. Here is, here is the correct pronunciation. Nick. It's just Nick. Ras, yeah, Raskalunik. <laughs> Raskalunik. Yes. Now, he's an interesting choice of producer for Black Star Riders. He's worked, of course, with Stone Sour, Deftones, Evanescence, Ghost, Mastodon, all these bands that don't have that sort of Thin Lizzy classic rock sound. What does he bring to your sound? And, and Because it, it, it seems as though you're coming from sort of two different schools in terms of music, music sound. Um, what does he bring to you guys in terms of production? I think Nick has absolutely brought the girth, you know, the heaviness to our sound. Right. I think if you left us to our own devices to go in the studio and make these records, Mitch, I, I think they might be softer than they have ultimately become. Uh, just because, you know, I, we listen to some new music, but we don't, re- I, you know, if, when I'm looking for inspiration, man, I'm, if it's, if it's musical, I'm listening to Aerosmith and Lennon Skinner and Old Thin Lizzy Records and Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. And if it's lyrically, me and Ricky both, we're listening to Neil Young and Springsteen and The Clash and, you know, records that were made 30, 40 years ago. Um, Nick has been making quality rock records with, as you mentioned, different types of rock bands over, over the last 20 years. But, you know, the fact that he was here in Nashville, he and I live in the same town. Uh, some other bands he produced that we were really inspired by were Rush and Alice in Chains, and of course his work with the Foo Fighters. So we just knew with this broad resume that he could certainly take our songs. If he felt like our songs were good, he could get us in the studio. He, we knew he had experience working with veteran guys. Mitch, that can be very tricky. Dealing with, you know, late 40s, early 50s, in Scott's case, early 60s, you know, year old guy. Say, all right, we're going to make a new record. Um, it, 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 it can be challenging. People have their way of, they think they want to do things or they want to kind of go down this rabbit hole of, well, this is the wrong guitar. Let's try these other guitars. With Nick, man, it just takes all the guesswork out of so many things. Not to say that we don't have discussions or, you know, experiment with stuff. But for the most part, if Nick says, hey, bro, for this song, we're going to play that Les Paul through this amp, through that speaker cabinet. Man, I don't question it. I don't even give it a second thought. I go, great, plug it in, fire it up, count it off, let's go. And it's just a pleasure, you know. It's, I, can't, I can't really quantify, um, you know, it just takes so much guesswork out of it. So it allows us all to focus more on what we should be focused on, and that is the performances and the songs themselves. Uh, he literally, I know it sounds cliched, Mitch, but Nick is without a doubt the sixth member of our band. In the studio, no question about it, man. He's vital to us. We love him. We love working with him. Yeah, and the albums you've made with him are, are absolutely stunning. And and, and I'm, I'm, I'm ha- pleasantly surprised to hear that, that you know, the reins are turned over to him because when you have somebody like Scott Gorm, who's been in the business for 40 years, it would be very easy for him to stand up and say, Hey, listen, I've been in this business for 40 years and this is how it's going to be done. And you know, that attitude probably wouldn't be very productive. So it's nice to know that Nick comes in and everybody just goes, yeah, let's do this. Great. Well said Mitch. And without, 
I mean, I'm, I'm not throwing Scott under the bus when yeah, I say that. And this, neither was but, I, by the way. It's just what, no, I know you weren't. I know you weren't. But, but your description was pretty head on. There were definitely moments where Scott would say, well, hey, you know, when we made the Jailbreak album, okay, he was in the studio for that. He co-wrote songs on that. He was a part of that. One of the great hard rock albums of all time ever, <laughs> you know, it's pretty legit for, for that guy to say, well, here's, you know, back then we had more time. We would spend more time in the studio and we would spend more time in rehearsal and we'd spend more time this and that. And I think it's taken Scott a little while to finally come to understand that we don't have that luxury anymore. You know, we don't have a major record label that is content to spend $250,000 of their budget, of your money, to just block out a studio for three months and just come in and put your feet up on the console and go, well, I got this riff. Check it out, guys. Uh Uh-uh. Doesn't work like that anymore. You got to do your homework in advance. You got to get in the the garage and shred the songs and kind of work out the kinks. And then when the clock is ticking and you're in there with a pro like Nick, you know, he's sensitive to those things as well. He doesn't waste time. He knows, okay, guys, here's, we got these three weeks, got a lot of work to do. Here's how we're going to do it. And we follow his instructions and lo and behold, we get it done. And the stuff sounds amazing. I have to give a footnote at least of credit to our great friend, Jay Rustin, who has mixed both the killer instinct and heavy fire. Uh, Jay does a tremendous job. He and Nick are a great team, even though they're in different cities. Jay's in Los Angeles and Nick is here in Nashville. You know, they communicate via phone. Nick, they're both really busy, you know. Anthrax is leaving Jay's studio and, you know, a hailstorm is coming in the Knicks right behind us. So, you know, there's a lot of moving and shaking. But, you know, with those two guys at the helm, um, we're very pleased with the results. And as far as I can tell you, as far as I know, it's going to be the, the same team again for the fourth album. Uh, I couldn't be happier about that. Well, and, and and me too, by the way, because so far you're 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 three for three. Uh, I don't know how much more time you have because I'm I'm sort of looking at all these different notes and all these different questions I want to ask you about. You know, uh, working with the. Oh, well, carry guys. on, man. Carry well, on. I'll, I'll I'll try to I'll try to edit my answers a little bit. All right. So so I do want to ask you about working with. Uh, the guys in Skid Row back in around 2000-ish, somewhere around there, um, you wrote three songs with them. Go See You yeah. Around, Down From the Underground. Um, what was it like working with those guys? Because that also, I mean, if you look at your career and, and you look at uh, Brother Kane, which is more of a 90s sound, and then you look at Whiskey Falls and you look at, uh, and, and, you know, the Faith Hills, you know, and, and, and Jet Black you've really sort of covered the entire spectrum of, of rock guitar. Um, what was it like working with those guys? Cause they had a lot of pressure on their back making this album that, you know, there's no Sebastian. There's no, just tell me about that experience real quick. Well, my memories of that are all so positive and, and really, and truly, I just felt like I was in the band, you know, the guys made me feel like that. The music made me feel like that. And, you know, getting in a room with Snake and Rachel to write some songs. Uh, we spent about three together, three days together in Atlanta, I recall. You know, man, it was no different than when Marty Fredrickson and I would write for Brother Kane, or if I was in my own 
you know, rehearsal space in Birmingham, Alabama, you know, writing songs with the Brother King guys. It felt very comfortable. We had toured together. Uh, Skid Row and Brother Kane had done a tour with Van Halen in the mid-90s, so that's how we all kind of got to know each other. So the minute Rachel called and said, hey, man, you got some time. Would you even want to do this? I didn't hesitate. I said, hell yeah, man, that would be a blast. And I thought the stuff we came up with was fantastic. And, uh, you know, um, I was really proud that they called because I have a lot of respect for those two guys as songwriters, without without a doubt, man. They, they've written some great songs in their own history. So, um, it was flattering to get that call. And I love that experience. And we're all great friends to this day. Yeah. And, uh, boy, you know, I have to say doing an interview with you is, is difficult because I'm such a fan of, of the albums and the stuff. And I have all these different questions and I'm trying in my head to filter it down, but it gets difficult. So let me finish with these, these two then, uh, Ricky Warwick, I have described him uh, in the past as being a, a, a child of Brian Adams and, and John Bon Jovi from the 80s with an Irish swagger. Just an incredible voice, an incredible songwriter, prolific like you couldn't believe. Um, talk to me a little bit about Ricky and what he brings because I, I couldn't think of a better voice, not only for for the days in Thin Lizzy, but for Black Star Riders. It's just the perfect rock voice for this style of music. Thank you, Mitch. I feel everything about Ricky that you just just described from from just his prolific ability and his voice being perfect. Um, I think Ricky is really he's the guy that gives us so much legitimacy, Mitch. He we are authentic. Our music is authentic with Ricky at the microphone. It's a really tricky slope when you start trying to find a singer for a veteran band with guys that have been playing music since the 80s and the 90s. I'm sorry if this comes off as a criticism, but there's a lot of those guys that want to sing high, really high. They want to write songs about girls and not not just relationships, but hot girls and strippers and you know whatever man and it's just i hate that shit i'm sorry i hate it i always have i you know i i, I grew up listening to way too many john prine and and merle haggard records you know and not to say brother kane didn't have a couple of songs that had maybe a lyric or two that i would absolutely take back <laughs> right now but you know when i got my head around ricky's background and the artist you know his influences as a writer and a singer, um, I just felt like I'd found this soulmate, literally a soulmate. And if he were on this conversation, I think he would tell you, you know, he had never had a band member in the same band with him that, you know, was as prolific and wrote as fast as I do as well. You know, he had to really carry the bulk of that responsibility himself when he was in the almighty. And um, I think, you know, Ricky makes us cool, Mitch. You know, we're, we're proud of the fact that Black Star Writers has a, has a, has accomplished what we have. There's a cool factor about Black Star Writers. I, I I don't think that on my own. I get that reinforcement from my friends and other bands, from the promoters, from other managers. Um, you know, and I just think Ricky is vital to that. You know, we got the legend on stage left playing his left paw, and then we got this badass up front singing these lyrics, you know, the songs like Bound for Glory and Soldier's Town 
and you know dancing with the wrong girl and i could go on and on and on uh i can't name one song on all three albums that i don't think is quality and that i don't enjoy listening to just as as a music fan and it's just it blows my mind sometimes what we're able to come up with and uh He's, he's, he's been a real key, man, to, to my getting re-inspired, as we talked about earlier, you know, when I left Alice to join Lizzie. Um, it's really been kind of what I was thinking about anyway, you know, putting something together to where I could write songs, make records, and, and be an artist again. And that's what we're getting to do together, all five of us. We're getting to be artists, and it just feels amazing. Yeah, and, and I agree with you there. There's an authenticity, you know, coming in into the Thin Lizzy thing and trying or, or, or putting his voice to songs that Phil had done is no easy task. And yet fans accepted him right away because it was authentic. It wasn't just a mime. And, you know, that's 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 tough to do. Um, let me finish on this uh, uh, little Pontiac from the song from the album release and just move on from your album Echo which is the best song or in fact they're both those are your two greatest songs which is your favorite wow thank you Pontiac Pontiac I wrote with a great friend of mine his name is Scott Brewer we came up in the club scene in Birmingham way back in the early 90s and we've stayed in touch and you know, remain close. And Scott kind of comes from that same diverse musical background at home. Like I did, it wasn't, we, we grew up on not just rock and roll, but a lot of country and gospel and rhythm and blues and soul music. And, but there was just something intrinsically American about this basic idea that he brought to me one day that, that became Pontiac. And for me, lyrically, it just was bullseye spoke to, some experiences I had as a young kid. And, you know, I've been listening to a lot of Tom Petty and a lot of Bob Seger. And I don't know, man, it just feels like that kind of song. I mean, it's the same four chords, basically the whole, the whole thing. But of all the songs that I've been a part of writing, Mitch, there's something next level special for lack of a better description about Pontiac. I can't really put a finger on it, but I just know that when I sing it with my solo band, when I sing it on just acoustic guitar, people kind of lean in, you know, I see it, I see their faces and they just kind of like, yeah, man, I feel you. It's almost, it's almost like maybe they, they see something of themselves in that lyric. And to me, that's the greatest compliment any songwriter can get. Uh, I wish I could bottle that and, and accomplish that every time I sit down to write a song. Uh, it's not like that, unfortunately, but, uh, Definitely a song I'm proud of, Mitch. Thanks for uh, you know for singling that one out. Uh, yeah, there's Pontiac a smoking version. Yeah, I was going to say version of Pontiac on my my new live album. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say Birmingham tonight is the new live album. Which you see, I, I have completely ignored. There's just so much that I wanted to talk about that I forgot about. <laughs> but but Birmingham tonight is the new live album, and it is absolutely fantastic. And that version of Pontiac, and I've listened to all your your songs and all your different versions and. All, that particular live version, it just makes the hair stand up on your neck. I mean, it's just so wow. perfect. Um, thank you, Mitch. Wow, thank you, man. My band did a great job. I'm so proud to, uh, you know, they're, they're all guys that we live here. They all live here in Nashville. That was my one requirement 
when I put my solo band together is you had to live in Nashville. This, the chaos that I have to deal with and, and every band I've been in in the last 15 years with flights and people living literally in different countries. It's just, it's impossible, <laughs> you know? So we can all get together. We can watch a ball game together. We, we, we rehearse in the guitar player's basement. Uh, you know, there's all, it's just great. So we have a connection and, and I got to give them credit. You know, they were the ones that said, Hey man, we should try that song Pontiac. I had, it was not on the song list for me to, to record, to play at that show. And had they not brought it up, I probably wouldn't have played it. Cause I'd only done it at my acoustic gigs. You know what I mean? So, uh, they played it with such finesse, man. A lot of dynamics, very, uh, you know, very heartbreakers, man. Very Tom Perry and the heartbreakers. I'm, I'm, Really proud with how that turned out. Yeah, and speaking of of, of Tom Petty, of course, uh, you know, may he rest in peace. He passed away. Um, I think the Black Star Riders. If you were to cover like American Girl or one of those songs, just you know, Scott's tone, your tone, and Ricky's voice together, I think would just be absolutely dynamite. I think you guys would. Well, I hope we. That's a brilliant idea, man. I hope we discuss that when we're together next week in London for rehearsals. Uh, I know Scott certainly has a lot of respect for Tom. Um, <clears throat> you know, they 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 kind of had success almost around the same time. Scott Scott got there a little before Tom, but he's certainly aware of who he is. And uh, man, I Ricky and I love Tom so much as a songwriter. You know, there's no doubt that. Uh, talk about authentic. Um, yep. That's a great idea, man. Maybe maybe that would that be badass, man, for Black Star Writers to cover a Tom Petty song. Get yeah. out of here. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what genius. Have... And I'm trying to think which ones, but I mean, right away, American Girl. I just, I just, just Ricky doing American Girl would be. There's too many. There's just too many songs. Too many. Um, like even even the losers, you know, that would just be so great to have Ricky singing that. Even the losers get lucky sometimes. They keep a little bit of pride. They get lucky sometimes. Awesome. Oh, that awesome. would be perfect. That would be perfect. Now, um, w- will you and Ricky ever make an album together? Because you do those acoustic shows, and, and hopefully when you're on the um, uh, North American run, you'll, you'll, you'll dart off and do a few uh, shows you know, here and there. But um, what about an album just you two? Yeah, it has to happen, yep. Mitch. It has to happen. Um, you know, it would definitely be, it would lean a little more, it it would, it would be our folk side a little bit. I don't mean that it would be all acoustic. I I think we'd want to have, you know, some kind of rhythm section involved, certainly on part of it. But, um, you know, again, man, there's just so many styles of music that Ricky and I share a, a deep passion for. And, you know, there's a lot of songs that, uh, that are on the table already songs that didn't make all hell breaks loose songs that didn't make, uh, you know, killer instinct or heavy fire. And it weren't that they weren't great songs. They just weren't maybe the right fit for, for that particular record. And, uh, so, um, a couple in particular, I think of that, uh, you know, we could go in and knock it out. I mean, that's the other thing too, with me being here in Nashville, uh, if we can get the drums cut at somebody's studio, Mitch, we can do the rest of it in my basement. You know, my, uh, my daughter can, uh, can make chocolate chip cookies and uh, we can just get it done right here. Easy, inexpensive, uh, and it'd be a lot of fun. So I, I really hope that we get to, to do that one day. Uh, we, we've talked about it, no doubt about it. We definitely have, and I, I know we would both love to make that happen. Yeah, that would be great. And uh, there you go. Uh, it, it, it has been difficult for me to concentrate. I just so much uh, music and stuff that I wanted to talk about. And 
There you go. Always a pleasure. And uh, oh, by the way, free falling with Ricky would be fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. You might have to just do an entire Tom Petty covers album acoustically, like he did with uh, Stairwell Troubadour. Just you two punching out Tom Petty songs would be. Uh... You, you will get no complaints from me, my friend. I just played a solo gig last weekend down in a little town called Gadsden, Alabama. I played six Tom Petty songs as a tribute to an artist that's just been a massive influence on me. And uh, it was almost like our own little memorial, me and the people that, that were there in attendance. And uh, so, yeah, it could be special. Mitch, your, uh, your enthusiasm for our music, for my music, is greatly appreciated, man. Thank yep. you. You're very and, welcome. Uh, and of course, we look forward to seeing you when we're on tour with Judas Priest in the spring. I love your idea of maybe a Warwick Johnson date or two, some kind of a after show party gig situation. I think we should try and make that happen. Yeah, I think that would be fantastic. And of course, uh, the closest date to me will be Ottawa. So I will be there. I believe it is March 25th, 2018. Uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. You played that venue before, by the way, with Alice Cooper. Uh, when you played it with Alice, it was sort of a, a dumpy old area. They have renovated it beyond belief. I mean, it is an absolute concert experience for the fans. It is so beautiful what they've done in Ottawa to that area. Brilliant, and man. Brilliant, you'll love man. it. You will yeah. absolutely love cool. it, and I look forward to cool. it. Awesome, brother. Well, so do we. Great talking to you, man. Thank you. Have a good one. All right, man. Cheers. Take care. See you soon. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. Do you want to be great at reading body language, developing persuasion and influence, as well as master rapport and social interaction? What if I told you that you would learn from top performers like NBA superstar Shaquille O'Neal, former CIA director Michael Hayden, and brilliant thinkers like Dirty Jobs Mike Rowe? Take a minute right now and subscribe to the Art of Charm podcast with me, Jordan Harbinger, and you'll hear how I pull out the secret psychology, life experience, and wisdom that can only be learned from them. You'll hear Shaq talk about how to manage your career and how to know who to trust when everyone's out to get something from you. You'll discover how to think critically from Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson and even how Tony Hawk's life as a skateboard icon will influence how you think about your career and relationships in a whole new way. This show is for you if you want to outcompete, outperform, and outthink everyone around you. And it's the only place you'll get practical, applicable strategies from every single episode. Since you're all about learning from the absolute best, download and subscribe for free right now and upgrade your brain four times a week at podcastone.com or in the Podcast One app. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Certainly hope you enjoyed my uh, conversation with Damon Johnson of the Black Star Riders. And let us move on for the final time today with singer... Nathan James of the band Inglorious, their new album, Inglorious 2, is going to be on a lot of top ten lists this year. It is a solid, solid effort by the band. And uh, listen, I'm not going to give you the whole uh, spiel, the whole talk up. Let's just get right into this. Here is, from the band Inglorious, singer Nathan James. We are speaking with singer Nathan James from the band Inglorious. I, I know some of you may not have heard of the band, but you absolutely must. They are one of the best exports from the UK. Uh, two albums, Inglorious and Inglorious 2, both 
highly recommended listening material. Nathan, a great, great pleasure to have you. Uh, first time on this show. You've, you've, we've interviewed before for other things, but the first time here. So welcome to Rock Talk. Thank you very much for having me. I think the last time I physically saw you was at... Uh, it was at Guns N' Roses, wasn't it, in Toronto? Yeah, in fact, I was going to throw that in as one of our anecdotes, but yeah, that was uh, yeah. that was quite interesting because you obviously that was you're, so fun. It really was, but you're you're UK based, and you came all the way to North America to Toronto to see Guns N' Roses. And first of all, what an incredible show! <laughs> right? It was amazing. It was so good. And and of course, a great pleasure to see you there. But yeah, yeah. So so you know, let me start with that then. Uh, the general context of that you're a true hard rock classic rock old school rock fan um talk to me about some of some of those bands and the fact that it was so important for you to make that trip to see now this was 2016 so we're talking when it was just like the reunion reunion not this year where it was fresh yeah but it was fresh but there was also that that fear that if i don't see them now I'll never see them because everybody thought it was going to implode, right? We all thought, well, this is never going to last. And so yeah. um, talk to me just about that affinity for, for, for that kind of music. And then, of course, we'll get to Inglorious too. I had to go, basically. I had to see it. Um, there was no plans at the time when I booked for the UK shows that they ended up doing, but I, I just knew that I had to go. So I got some crazy tickets. I think I was like 15th row or something. Um, and I, I just did it. Spent a lot of money, but I feel like it's something that will never happen again. And I, I absolutely loved it. I think I cried for like the first fifteen minutes. It was like it was like seeing like your favorite movie come to life. You know, it's just something you never ever expect to see. Yeah, yeah, we we really didn't expect it, and it lasted. So, but but talk to me about this in terms of Inglorious. The band has been um, referenced or, or likened to White Snake to Deep Purple, to some of those older classic rock bands, and everybody says, well, rock is dead, rock is dead. But you, you've stood tall and proud and said, no, this is the music we're going to make, and, and you do it very, really well. But was there a fear in, in, in going in that route? You know, why not you know, do some rap or some new metal or something more you know, for the kiddies? Why, you know, was there a risk this this is the stuff I love, so it's the stuff I'm going to make. Um, I don't want to make anything that I, I don't like, uh, and it's de- it's definitely not dead in the UK right now. We just we did a tour and we sold out nearly all of our shows, which is, is proof that it's not dead. It's not going anywhere. Um, uh, rock radio in the UK is very strong at the moment, and uh, and yeah, there's this. There's people going to gigs. People are bored of hearing computerized, crappy music, I think. you know, They want to hear something real, and they want to hear something proper, and that's what we're doing. It's very honest, our, our sound, and, and and we love it, and people seem to be digging it as well. Yeah, they, they really do. Um, talk to me, though, about getting started here, because you've done Trans-Siberian Orchestra. You've done Uli John Roth. <laughs> But stepping out on your own and putting a band together like Inglorious, especially in our marketplace, and we hear all about you know all these disaster stories. Um, but talk to me about getting a band going. Why not just sort of say, okay, I've got a gig with Uli. I can just go tour with Uli for the next fifteen years. I can make a nice living. Um, but you, you need more than that. And and talk to me about the challenges yeah. about setting a new band and making your own mark. I. 
I wanted to sing my own songs. That's the most important thing. Like I wanted to to make my own music that I could I could enjoy singing for the next thirty, forty, fifty years of my life. You know. Um, Whereas all those guys that I have been working with in the Transiberian orchestras and stuff have kind of already done that, you know. They've got their got their pedigree. They're a lot older than me, um, and I, yeah, I, I feel like I have some sort of duty to keep singing high and loud in an age where people seem to be singing lower and quieter. Um, so I'm going to just keep doing it basically. And it was really hard at first to find an, a band that was on the same kind of like wavelength as me. Not not because there's not a lot of people that love the music, but more because there's not enough talented people. And I truly mean that. It was really hard when I started auditioning for for a band um, to find people of caliber enough to be able to to play like I wanted them to play. You know, I've had the the privilege of playing with, uh, I did a gig with Steve Vai once, I performed with Al Petrelli and TSO, Joel Hoekstra, uh, some incredible musicians. And, um, yeah, I think that's the only reason like the the kind of classic rock world is is in a bit of a a bit of a state at the minute, and that is because because kids aren't we'd say asked in the UK to to pick up an instrument and become a master. You know, there's not a master like Uli John Roth my age. It's very hard to find those people that are willing to sit down for ten hours a day in their bedroom and get out and gig um, when when kids nowadays seem to be intent on just. Yeah, playing computer games and and listening to terrible music. Yeah, they really did. Now, you also had a sort of an added challenge. You had done the TV shows, you know, The Voice and Superstar over in the UK. (coughs) Did that sort of hinder the process? Because a lot of times um, people look at at contestants on that as having an unfair advantage or they they cheated their way into it or they're not really rock and rollers, they're they're just TV. Did that help you in where you were instantly recognized or did people sort of give you that nonsense about, well, he can't be a real rock and roller. He didn't pay his dues in the club. I did way before that. But I think the problem is, is that the world is changing and the industry has changed. Um, so you can either sit at home and be miserable about it and watch TV and all these people getting on and becoming successful. You can, you can do the exact same. Um, and that's what I did, and it did pay off because without me being on TV, Transurban Orchestra wouldn't have discovered me. Uh, they saw me because of my audition on The Voice, um, which has been seen by over three million people now. Um, so yeah, without without that TV show, without it, that exposure, people wouldn't know who I am. So yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely paid off. Also, it helps nowadays. People like record labels and. PR companies and stuff are only interested in you if, if you've got a guaranteed market of people that are in that that like you already, you know. So when I went to Frontiers Records and said, "Look, I've got fifteen thousand likes on my Facebook page and I've got twenty five thousand followers on Twitter," they all of a sudden the guy, "Ah, oh, okay, this could be this is more interesting than me walking up some guy that's played clubs and's got three hundred followers," you know. It's, yeah. it's more interesting to them from a from a financial point of view. It really is. Now, of course, uh, Inglorious 2, which, and I will say this uh, as honestly as I can, the great new album by Inglorious. Thank you. Um, came out in May, so it's, it's yep. had a chance to sit. And you know what? We talk about albums aging, and yes, okay, we're only talking four or five months here, but it has aged incredibly well. You know, it's, it still sounded fresh. I listened to it this afternoon to get myself prepped um, for this interview. 
and it, it was still rock and still blasting. But you got to work with Kevin Shirley on the album, um, legendary yeah. producer. He, he's done everybody who's anybody. Uh, talk to me about working with Kevin because, you know, here you are, this new band, and you're getting some A-list producers that are going to go, okay, I'll work with you. And um, yeah, t- talk to me about that. That was pretty cool. Um, I just, when we were batting around ideas for who we wanted to mix this record, I he was at the top of my list, and I just thought we couldn't, A, we couldn't afford him, and also he wouldn't be interested. Um, so I got my manager to send him an email, and he came back straight away and said, I'd love to be involved uh, after seeing a couple of videos and stuff. So that was pretty awesome. Uh, the best thing I think about working with him was that he he's so quick, like we are as a band. So with the band tracks, apart from my vocals, they tracked the whole album in four days. Uh, and they actually tracked 16 songs. So it's more songs than were on the album. You know, they were so quick at working. We tracked live all in one room. Apart from me, I go in afterwards and do my vocals uh, on separate occasions because I spend my time listening back in the control room. But when we sent it to Kevin, he was very similar. He mixed the whole album in about four days. Um, and he'd send me emails with like mixes and ideas and stuff. And he said, what do you think of this? And he said, check this mix out. And then he'd send a compliment email where he'd be like, Nathan, you really sound like Paul Rogers on this song. And things like, things like that, which I, I will treasure for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, like he's worked with, he's mixed Glenn Hughes, Stephen Tyler, uh, Maiden, you know, he's mixed he's mixed the best singers of all time. So for him to say those words to me and to genuinely dig our band is is freaking awesome. It's absolutely amazing, very humbling, and it yeah, it means it means a lot. It really does. And like you mentioned, he, he's worked with those bands: the Led Zeppelins, the Aerosmith, the Bon Jovi's, the Rushes, Iron Maidens, and he's made those bands sound great. What is it? about Kevin that sort of understands the sound because as far as Inglorious goes you've got that, that that similar pedigree I couldn't think of a better producer for you because he gets it just by looking at what he's done with those bands he gets yeah. that so, so what did he bring in and terms he's of- still got it yeah. that's what I think is important like you listen to the Black Country Communion records and they sound fresh and awesome and raw and gritty and exciting and that for someone to have a career as long as he is and still have such great ears, I think is really commendable. You know, he's, he's, he is a, he's a very clever, very, very gifted man. Totally, totally is. Um, now you've done sold out shows in, uh, the UK and Europe. You're, you're getting, you're heading out in December to hit some of us, you know, uh, Netherlands and, and, and Italy and stuff like that. Um, talk to me about the challenges of coming over to North America because, I don't think we've seen a, an Inglorious show yet, unless you did the... No, we did the Monsters of Rock cruise, cruise right. uh, which is the closest we got to, which definitely wasn't mainland. It was definitely, yeah, it was but, definitely but, moving when we played. <laughs> but the North American Martin is, uh, market is important to any band. I mean, you, you, you sort yep. of can't make it unless you've conquered here. So what is sort of your game plan for this market in terms of getting over here, getting some tours, getting fans to, to pay attention? And of course, those listening to me must pay attention. They got to go and, and you know buy the album, Spotify. I don't care what you do, but you got to listen to it because it's great. Um, yeah, just listen to it. Yeah, just listen and also, to it. the good thing is that I think we have in a, as an advantage on uh, many other bands is that when you do come and see us live, it is the exact same as the album because that's how it's tracked. You know, there's no click track. There's no there's no falsities around what we do. There's no it's. It's five guys 
and a keyboard player playing playing rock and roll properly how it should be played, nice and loud, and with everything we've got. Um, and yeah, I've, I've been to so many gigs of like recent times in the last few years, and just been so disappointed by by people hiding behind backing tracks or even like live tuning and stuff like this. And I, I just don't want that. I want I want it to be real. And if you can't do it properly, you shouldn't do it at all. That's my that's my. I agree. Motto. Um, I and, agree. And I mean, can, a live show we can be really a live do it show. properly. You know. Yeah, it should be live. If you can't do it in the st- if you can't do it live in the studio, you shouldn't you shouldn't do it. You know, no, <laughs> my I, opinion. I, I, listen, I agree, and and in the position that I'm in, I've I've gotten to go to sound checks and 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 backstage, and I've seen them say, you know, I've seen people roll in and go, oh, that's the tape machine. We're running 24 tracks tonight, and you're going. Excuse me, <laughs> you're running what tonight? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, and and you see the keyboard player that's under the stage, and go, um, what's he doing there? Why and, is he and, there? Yeah, yeah, you know, and so it's 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 too bad. But what is sort of the game plan though for North America? Just to just to answer that, because it's basically we're going. To, we've got an agent in North America now um, who. We like we're, we're just looking for the right tour because, as I'm sure people can imagine, to get five guys uh, plus crew and management over to America to fly us over is is expensive. You're looking at probably ten thousand dollars before we've even hit the ground, um, and then then the fees of being there. You know, it's, it's to travel around, etc. It just needs to be the right the right tour to get us on, so that we don't go there and lose the money that we've made in the UK, you know, because this is, this is our job. This is our livelihood. And right now in the UK, we're, we're talked about, we're up there with, with, with the big guys at the moment, we're selling out big venues and with, with, we've got a great agent here. We've got one of the best agents in the world, uh, a guy called Steve Strange, who looks after very famous pop acts, probably his biggest act is Coldplay. So we've, we're looked after by the right people over here. We're just looking for that great in and great opportunity in the US before we go over there and, and ruin it. And we have a lot of time, you know, we're young, so we want to do it properly. We'd rather do a lot of planning and make sure it's done really well than get over there and waste an opportunity, you know? Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, the, a lot of fans don't think of the costs involved in this. Uh, Diamond Head uh, came over here last, um, the, well, they came over here recently, but they came here last year. And I was speaking to one of the band members, and he said, "You know what? It cost us twenty thousand dollars just to land in North America, and we haven't played a single yeah. show yet." And, you and know, I bet that's probably visas and everything, you know. Yeah, like, and there's a lot of have risk. To individually pay for visas and pay for all of that stuff, flying gear over, flying freight. It's just it's expensive. It's so expensive. And the other thing for them is that they had done the tour in the winter. So if a if a show gets canceled because there was a snowstorm or the highway was closed out or you catch a cold and you can't play, I mean, nobody's paying down that twenty thousand dollars because you're sitting in a hotel room with the sniffles, right? So it, exactly. there's, a, there's a lot of um, what, what am I not danger, but there's a lot of risk involved in coming over. Um, for the band itself, though, what's the plan? Because you're you're doing exceptionally well in the UK. Um, but is there like sort of this five-year plan where you sort of look back and say, okay, if we haven't reached this amount of success, we need to move on? Uh, do you at some point say, listen, no. No, no, okay. We're just, we're going for it and it, it's working. This is the one thing that I'm really proud of is that 
we we have a, a really great label. They're a really lovely label, uh, Frontiers Records. Um, uh, but they're not a major label, you know. They're not they've not given us a million pounds to make an album or anything like that. We've done it. We've done it the hard way. We've worked. We've worked hard. They've worked hard. Um, and we're growing. You know, our first album did okay. The second album was number one in the UK official rock chart. It made the UK top ten on the midweek, the official chart. Um, so we're doing this out of out of gigging, out of making good albums, and out of making honest rock and roll music. And I think that is that is the way to do it in a time where everything is such utter crap. Um, I feel like people are finally are thankful, and I think they respect the way we're doing it. And I think that's that's important because I'm at the end of the day I'm proud of the way that I've done it. I haven't been handed this. My dad isn't a rock star. He's not in a rock band, you know. Um, like we're not looked after by some some huge old manager who's doing it as a favour for someone. But this is how we're doing it, you know. We're doing it from the ground up, and it's so far it's working, and we're going to keep doing it this way. Yeah, and you're doing it from the ground up. And the other thing that I find incredible is, especially looking at your set lists is you're doing it with original songs. You know, there might be a cover here and there, but generally it's here are our songs. Um, and that's impressive to me because there's so many bands that, you know, they'll throw five or six covers in there and they, they'll sort of band-aid the show together and you're not doing that. Um, but in terms of new music, because you need always to have new music, do you want to get, do you want to punch out sort of the third and fourth and fifth album in the next like sort of three years and then just sort of have this, uh, catalog to work from or do you really want to just say no we've got number two that just came out in may talk to us in 2019 we're going to work this as long no as way can. no no way we are writing album three now and we have our studio dates booked for next spring so yeah we are we're doing it how they did it in the in the 70s you know an album a year but <laughs> it, it's there's no reason why we can't. This is our full-time job. We've sacrificed so much to do this. We love making new music. And in the UK, for instance, I've got, I, we haven't had this success in the US because we've not been there at all. But we've had eight A-listed singles on Planet Rock, which is the biggest station here in the UK. Um, it's got like a million weekly listeners or something. Uh, so to have eight singles over two albums is incredible. I don't think there's another band that have done that actually. Um, so yeah, we're really, really chuffed uh, with that. And that's, that shows you that people like our songs, you know, it's, it's really cool that people are liking these songs enough to, to listen to them, to buy tickets, to come to shows, to, to buy albums. We're actually selling units, you know, we're selling hard copies of CDs in 2017, which is just, just incredible. We had to we had to order more vinyl the other day. You know, we sold out a vinyl on our UK tour. We're, it's exciting. It's really cool. Um, so yeah, um, we had, we're just going to keep making great music. We're going to keep keep touring our asses off. And more importantly than any of this stuff, like any of the the money and the hardship and the working our asses off and whatever, we genuinely are having the time of our lives. And I don't. If it all came crushing down tomorrow. For the last three years, I've literally lived the dream, and um, my dreams are coming true. I got to play Donington, you know. I got to play Donington, which is someone paid me to sing at Donington. That's unbelievable. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Like all these incredible things are happening, and I feel so lucky and so blessed every day. Um, and it's nice when people are buying your albums because it really spares you on to, to do a better job and to make more success of it. And 
And yeah, it's nice hearing lovely things from David Coverdale or Glenn Hughes when they tweet you a compliment. But more importantly than that, it's people. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I love having people spend their money on on my dream. I find it amazing. Yeah, it really is. And and what I find amazing, like you said about Donington, is it's one thing to go to Donington and you're singing for Uli, or you go to Donington and you're singing for Transite. But they're going to Donington to see you do your songs that you wrote. And that's got to be yeah. even trippier, right? It's so crazy. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, I'm really, really happy about it. And we also have a really cool announcement coming uh, very soon about some some big UK shows uh, supporting uh, a very cool artist. So um, that'll be that'll be a lot of fun for early next year, uh, straight after our European tour. And then festival season starts up again next summer, just in amongst us recording our third album. So we've got another really exciting, busy year ahead. And yeah. Which yeah, is just having the best time, and, and I'm looking forward to that. And and hopefully, uh, your management team and your your booking team can maybe get you to do some of the festivals in North America. Because you know, to come here and get in the van and do Club A, Club B, Club C, that can be tough. But to get you on a festival in front of fifteen thousand people wouldn't be so bad. And you know, that's, that's a good. No, way that to, would be awesome. Good, a good plan. And, and I'll I'll do I'll see what I can do about maybe like a in Montreal or something for one of these festivals, but. Um, That'd be awesome. Yeah, just just real quick, uh, you you mentioned album number three, um, sonically and stuff. Do you want to start moving into different directions and experimenting, or we're a hard rock band and we're going to do this like ACDC, and you're going to get another freaking hard rock album, and you're going to love it. You know, it's going to be it's going to be a hard rock album. Uh, the one thing I I think that we've talked about uh, on tour in the last couple of weeks is that we're all writing a bit darker and a bit heavier now uh, for this album, which is, I think is really exciting. Um, the songs that we love performing live are, are the really heavy, moody ones, you know? Uh, so we're going to write something a bit more heavy. Been listening to a lot of Dio. Um, so yeah, I want to, I want to, I also want to show people maybe a little bit of a different side to my voice. I'm known over the last couple of albums as being quite a, a bluesy melodic singer, you know? Um, and it'd be nice to, to really just show them that I'm, I can literally do everything. <laughs> well, yeah, and you probably can. And but but I I do liken you a lot to to David Coverdale, not in terms of like you're copying him or anything like that, because that that's not what I mean. But but you you have that ability to do a song, you know, like a burn, and then get over to a is this love, and, and like you can really sort of move your vocal within that blues rock kind of thing. And and I I think you're right up there. I mean, honestly, you really are. So thank you, know. you, man. It's very, very kind. Thank you. And 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 I'm assuming that he's one of your your well, maybe heroes, not the right word, but one of the guys you've looked up to because uh, you know he's a hero. He's a hero. And him, Glenn Hughes, uh, Paul Rogers, uh, Gillen, Freddie Mercury, even Axel. You know, I like Showman as well. I like Showman and Soulful Voices. So yeah, they they are the reason I they're the reason I sing actually. There you go. Yeah, Nathan, a great pleasure. And, and of course, I tell everybody here, go get Inglorious 2, uh, the new album by Inglorious. And if you haven't heard the first one, well, you got two albums to buy, my friends. Uh, there you go. Great pleasure. Thank you so much, Mitch. Have a great day, buddy. You too. Cheers. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. President Trump denies it. 
I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders, and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue, repair, and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.